The Bible shows us clearly what real love looks like, but it's impossible to live it out on your own. You need God's power to truly love others. Today on Telling the Truth, Joe Briscoe tells you how you can love like God does by allowing him to love through you. But first, if you want a strong and lasting marriage, the best place to look for guidance is the creator of marriage itself, God. We want to help you build a healthy and fulfilling marriage by sending you Jill Briscoe's series, Eight Things That Make a Marriage Work. We'll send you this resource along with a beautiful Bible verse print as thanks for your gift today to help others experience life in Christ. So call today to request your copy of this powerful four-message series, 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388, or you can give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now, here's Jill with her message to help us learn what real love is. All love is of God. God is love, 1 John 1, 4 says. God is love and the source of all love. So the love of God is shown in the death of Christ for us and his sacrifice for us. Phileo love is possible without reference to God because we're made in God's image and we're made capable of human love. So people who are not believers can love each other. People that are not believers can have a good marriage. People that are not believers can raise a good family. But at some point, phileo love, which is at heart tinged with selfishness, runs out and it cannot go beyond itself. It cannot pay the ultimate price. It would not give itself for someone without cause or without any response or expected reaction because there are limits And our human loves need to be submitted to the love of God in order to go beyond themselves. And then, of course, Eros, which I was about to describe, keeping my eye on my young man at the back of the crowd. Eros is, if it feels so good, it must be right. I cannot tell you the women over 30 years in ministry in this church who have sat in my office and said, I don't love my husband anymore, but I love somebody else's husband. And it feels so good, it must be right, because God is love and he gives love. So somehow God is going to make this work. And what they're talking about is eros, eros. And it feels so good, it must be right, it's wrong. (laughs) Well, as I got to the eros bit, I knew this was where my heckler was going to pipe up. So I described eros, the feeling too good for words. Eros always promises, C.S. Lewis says, what eros of himself is helpless to perform. I will love you always, but eros, the feeling, is helpless to promise that because it doesn't have the ability to maintain the feeling. So when eros runs out, you need to rely on agape, that you do the acts of love without the feelings for a while until eros is reignited. And if you don't know agape, if you don't know God, then when Eros runs out, so do you, or him, he runs out. Feel good doing it. Can that be right? Of course not. God put boundaries around our behavior and our instincts, sexual intimacy. That's God's idea too. But when there are no boundaries to it, when there are no rules to it, it causes havoc. 
It causes havoc. There have to be boundaries. Love's boundaries. Keeping something controlled and sweet and in the right place. And so then, of course, it was very obvious and easy for me on that campus that day to say, now then, you need to know God. How can you truly love? And then I was able to read the verses I read to you. Love is very patient. Love is very kind. It doesn't, it doesn't get angry easily doesn't boast, etc., etc. Now, let me quickly run through the definitions of those words to describe how love behaves. I've defined it for you. Now, let me describe it for you because selfishness kills a marriage. Selfishness kills a marriage. And the heart of those verses, four through six, is love is not selfish. That's the key. That's the pivot of it. And sometimes when I am listening to a couple pouring out their marriage problems, I am thinking, these people are behaving like a couple of kids. Now, further in this passage, Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, I behaved like a child, and then I grew up and I became a man. And what we need to do is grow up as people so we learn to live a life of love and demonstrate it in our family. If we are immature then we are like a kid. Now, kids are essentially selfish. Who disagrees with that? Well, all of us are selfish because we're born with a selfish nature. And kids, we hammer it out of them and we, we, we do what we have to do to get them not to be so... How many times have you said to your children, you are so selfish? Well, that's what kids are. That's what kids are made up of. And trustfully they will find the means of becoming other-centered instead of self-centered. But you see it specifically when they're very little, I think. And when I think of defining love and describing it, I just think of these words. Love is very patient. Are children patient? No. Not little children. Not even bigger children. They're not very patient. They're not patient at all. Patient is long-suffering, waiting out a difficult situation. How many times have you put a kid in the car and they've said, are we nearly there? And you haven't turned the ignition on yet. <laughs> Children are not patient. Now, the word Paul uses in the Greek language is very rich. So he had four or five words to choose from when he wanted to say love is patient. He had three or four words that meant different sort of patience. Patience with suffering, patience with a situation, patience with people. And he chose that one. Love is people patient. People patient. It waits well. It waits well. It's patient with little people, like children. It's patient with big people, like husbands, etc. Susanna Wesley had seven daughters and three sons. I wonder at your patience, someone said to her. You have told that child 20 times the same thing. If I had satisfied myself by only mentioning it 19 times, I should have lost all my labor. It was the 20th time that crowned it, she replied. Kids aren't patient. Kindness is the active part of patience. Patience is being good, waiting a difficult situation out. Kindness is doing good while you're waiting it out. And kindness is active. Patience is passive. Those are the words that tell us that. And so kindness is the active part of patience. Kindness puts you in a giving mode. Kindness is concrete love, corrective love. It is love in the concrete that's hard, pun. Concrete's hard, in case you don't get it. 
But it's love not in the abstract that's hard. We can talk about love. We can write about love. We can give each other little love notes. But it's concrete love in action that's very hard to do. I think women actually are very good at kindness because I think we're good at doing. Uh, it's part of our femininity. And if somebody's sick, we make a meal and we take it around. That's kindness. Loving your spouse like Christ loves isn't possible without his help. That's what Jill Briscoe has for you today, and she'll be right back with more. But first, you're invited to download the free Telling the Truth mobile app, where you can listen to and watch relevant Bible teaching, read and comment on devotionals, journal, and even share your thoughts and prayers on the community wall. Go to your app store today to download the Telling the Truth app. One question we often hear from Telling the Truth listeners is, what's the Bible's secret to a long, happy marriage? Over their years of ministry, Stuart and Jill Briscoe have both had a lot to say about this question. After all, they had the biblical wisdom and real-life experience over 60 years of marriage to back it up. And in Jill's four-message series called Eight Things That Make a Marriage Work, she shares timeless truth on marriage from the Bible, along with practical day-to-day -day advice from her own marriage to Stuart. We want to help you build a marriage that stands the test of time as you apply biblical truth to help your marriage not only survive, but thrive. That's why we're excited to send you eight things that make a marriage work, as well as a beautifully designed print featuring a Bible verse on marriage as our thanks for your gift today. Your gift will help keep sharing the life-changing truth of God's love with people around the world through the resources and teaching of telling the truth. So call today to request eight things that make a marriage work when you give. 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now let's get back to Jill as she continues her message, learn what real love is, and pray about it. Now, it might not always work, <laughs> but try kindness. God tried kindness with us. Kindness and goodness are two words that are closely allied. And it was the kindness, the goodness of God that led us to repentance, the Bible says. It was just a sheer goodness when we didn't deserve it one little bit, and that's what kindness is for. That's what led us to God. So let's try it. If you want to be kind, that is being loving. Try kindness. Going beyond what they deserve with an act, something concrete to do. Kindness is another word for servanthood. It's for washing feet. When those feet really are pretty dirty and they don't deserve to be washed. And maybe you say, I don't do feet. Christians do feet. Christian mothers do feet. That's what kindness is. So, for this I have Jesus. And when I run out of my phileo patience, because it has a very definite limit, there is unlimited patience within me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I have to learn to appropriate, to hang my weakness on his strength, to let his patience take over when my patience is gone. Love doesn't envy, it doesn't covet, it isn't jealous. The word is seethe, bubble, or steam. 
Do you ever seethe, bubble, or steam? Watch out, the Bible says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Coveting is looking at someone else and saying, I want what you've got. I want what you've got. And I don't want you to have it either. That's jealousy. There's two parts to the word. Coveting is not wanting what somebody's got because you don't have it. Jealousy is saying, and I don't want them to have it, and that leads to murder. I'll take it off them, whatever it costs. So coveting has to be dealt with. And I see this in America more than any other country in the world with women. The bigger house next door, I want one. I want what she's got. The bigger car, I want what she's got, etc., etc. The job, the husband's job. There is a coveting, horrible-ness in America, and I think it's to do with materialism and the greed need, the green monster. Barclay calls it the meanness of the soul. Shakespeare calls it the green monster, a green greed not necessarily to do with money. Paul said, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I've learned how to have everything. I've learned how to have nothing. I have learned contentment, and it's possible when you know Christ to learn contentment with such things as you have. Hebrews tells us that we have Christ, and we can be content with such things as we have, for he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And love doesn't boast. Incidentally, coveting can break a marriage up. Pressuring our husbands into the more, the greed need, well, then he'll have to take another job to do it for us and to provide for us what we want that we don't have. And so you never see each other because he's working second shift and the whole thing. I can tell you over and over again, I have seen that happen. Coveting is a thing that God alone can deal with because he alone can help you to be content. The content of contentment is Christ himself. And love doesn't boast. The word is windbag. It isn't puffed up. It isn't full of itself or full of its own importance. Think about children. I, me, my, mine. Listen into their conversation. Then sometime listen into yours. As you're talking to someone, maybe it'll be full of I, me, my, mine. And Paul says, grow up, get bigger. Because all you can think about, you're so self-centered. You're not other-centered. You're not other-centered. You're boasting. You're talking about yourself. You're only interested in yourself. Listen to yourself praying sometimes. Who are you praying about? Most of the time. Interesting little things. Bragging is a verbalizing of an inner arrogance, baseless chatter designed to make another look inferior. Empty trucks make the most noise. Think about that. (laughs) So, love isn't easily angered, it says here. How do you behave in your marriage and with your family and your children? The word is, love doesn't call forth to a conflict. Love doesn't say, come on, let's have a fight. And then you keep no record of wrongs. What does that mean? It's an accounting term. You don't keep a running record on him or the kids. Maybe he was unfaithful to you. Maybe there's something from your past you're struggling with and you can't forgive him. That will ruin your marriage. You have to let it go. At some point, you've got to give him permission to take it. Love doesn't enjoy constantly bringing it up doesn't delight in the evil, that's what it means, doesn't chew on it, doesn't horribly delight in it, but delights in the truth. Love never fails, this passage says, never fails. Does that mean it never fails? And people will say to me when I teach Corinthians and teach this passage, that's not true. I loved, I loved, I loved, and he still left. 
Or a child, I loved, I loved, I loved, and they still ended up in a pigsty, a prodigal. Don't tell me that love never fails. Failed. Now, it doesn't mean love never fails to get a response. What it means is love never fails to go on loving. Did you know that? Love never fails to go on loving, whether you get a response or not, whether they leave or not, whether the child ends up in a pigsty before he comes home to the father. Love never fails to be able to go on being loving. And a huge part of that, a huge part of that is prayer, is praying for each other, is praying for yourself, is getting to know God in such a way and intentionally putting yourself into the presence of God and saying, I can't do this for this only Jesus. I can't be patient. I can't be kind. And so, in a sense, your devotional life will determine the quality of the person you are in your marriage. How are you doing with your prayer life, for example? Are you getting to know God in such a way that you are finding out how he can release his power to you when you're powerless, his patience to you when you're impatient? That happens as you develop your devotional disciplines, as you get to know the Word of God more so you can apply it to your situation. As you walk into his presence and say, I can't do this. It's Velcro, God. Take it. Work the miracle for me because I'm trying to be my own miracle person and I'm not a miracle person. That's your job, not mine. You're trying to be God. You're trying to fix it and you can't fix it, but he can fix it if you let him. And he'll lend you his power. And he'll lend you all the things that you need to see the love of God set forth, set loose in your marriage. And so if you want to know how love is described, read the Bible. If you want to know how love is defined, read the Bible. If you want to know how love behaves, read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. And hang your heart over it. Get on your knees and say, Look at this. The Bible's supposed to be a mirror, and you're supposed to look in it and see yourself as you truly are. And so if you're honest when you read the Bible, you will see in this mirror, ooh, that's a picture of unfaithfulness or impatience or cruelty or unkindness. You will see reflected in this mirror who you really are, where you're at. And then you can talk to God about that. I don't like what I see here, and I know you don't like what I see, and I know my husband doesn't like what I see. I don't like what I see. Make me like you. You're patient. You're kind. This is a description. This is a portrait in words with the pen of Paul. He painted a portrait of Jesus, of real love in these verses. And so as you look at that and realize that what God wants to do is make you like him, your marriage is never going to be the same. As through the power of God, you begin to change and change. You might say, well, what about him? He needs to change too. Yes, but you're not responsible for him. You make him happy. God will make him holy. And you will make him happy. You will make him happy as you become more and more like Christ. What man wouldn't want to be married to someone who knew what it was to be infinitely patient and marvelously kind and able to forgive and not self-centered, but other-centered. I don't know a man that wouldn't love to be married to a woman like that.
You're listening to Jill Briscoe today on Telling the Truth. She returns in a moment to join us and answer some questions you may have from today's message. But first, God has given you the secrets to a long-lasting and joy-filled marriage, and they're found throughout the pages of Scripture. We want to help you mine the treasures of God's Word so that you can grow your marriage God's way. That's why we're excited to send you Jill Briscoe's four-message series, Eight Things That Make a Marriage Work. This powerful series will breathe new life into your marriage as you learn to anchor your relationship to God's truth. We'll send you eight things that make a marriage work, along with a special design print featuring a Bible verse on marriage as thanks for your gift this month to keep sharing the teaching and resources of telling the truth with so many around the world. Generous friends like you keep broadcasts like this one going, reaching others with God's healing love so they can experience life in Christ. If you haven't given before, consider a gift today to help keep God's word going out to you and many others. And remember to request eight things that make a marriage work and your Bible verse print when you call and give. Just call 1-800-889-5388. 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online when you visit tellingthetruth.org. Jill's here to answer a couple of questions about today's message. In today's materialistic society, Jill, it seems everyone covets what their neighbor has. How can we learn to be content with what God has blessed us with? Only if you're content with Christ and Christ alone. And that's just a phrase. What do I mean? The content of contentment is Christ, is knowing Him, experiencing Him by His Spirit living within you, of obeying Him, of living in harmony with Him within you, not grieving Him, not quenching Him, not resisting Him, not disobeying Him, okay? And so coveting says, I want what you've got. And if it's not dealt with, it grows into the green-eyed monster which says, and I don't want you to have it either. I'm going to take it. I'm going to get it. And we become obsessed with possessing what we covered. That's why Jesus said it begins with a look. And if you don't deal with the look, it ends in murder because so often you covet what you want, like David coveted Bathsheba up on the rooftop, and it ended in murder and adultery because he murdered the woman's wife, the woman's husband, in order to possess the desired object, Bathsheba. And it started with coveting. I want what he's got, and I don't want him to have it either. So I'll take it. And he did. Incredible to me that David, a man after God's own heart, could obey the other voice, could obey the voice that said, take her, get her. In fact, it says in the scriptures, actually, in Samuel, he sent people to get her. I hate that verse because that's exactly what happens. He sent his soldiers to get the object of his lust. And so in today's material society, it it begins with coveting, whether it's a woman or whether it's money or whether it's a home or whether it's position, possession, um, passion, passion, position, possession. That's the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, passion, position, possession. And when we want 
and we allow our want to rule our behavior and our actions and our plans, then we're in trouble, big trouble. How can we be content without what we think can satisfy us? And even we might even know it can't satisfy us, but for a moment, but we want the moment. So we'll go with what happens anyway. Um, be content with Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean he'll take everything off you, that, that money is bad. It doesn't say money is bad is the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, coveting what somebody else's money, somebody else's possessions. That's what's the problem. And so when I'm content with Jesus, when Jesus, as far as I know my heart, is my prime object of love and uh, adoration, then I'm content in him and materialistic things don't matter. And I can testify to that. Thank you, Joel. Before we go, we want to remind you this month, when you give to continue sharing God's word through Telling the Truth broadcasts like this one, we'll send you Joel Briscoe's four-message series, Eight Things That Make a Marriage Work, along with a Bible verse print about marriage. This powerful series will encourage you with eight biblical keys to a healthy, life-giving marriage. So please request your copy when you call 1-800-889-5388, 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online when you visit tellingthetruth.org. We're so grateful you joined us for today's broadcast of Telling the Truth. Be sure to come back again to hear more life-giving truth from Stuart and Jill Briscoe. Listen in and experience life next time on Telling the Truth.